Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Father, um, I imagine certainly most of us, if not all of us, will know that to read and hear your word is not itself a guarantee to be those who allow you to sift us uh, in the radiance of your purity. So it is right to sing such songs and to ask you to do that this evening uh, before this psalm, um, that we might grasp for ourselves by faith why um, you have preserved this in your scriptures for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do take a seat. Well, this is a joy, as we were saying earlier, to be, um, to be back at St. John's. It is um, a privilege to, uh, to preach here um, after a number of years. So um, thank you to, to, to Andy and, um, for that opportunity, and thank you for um, receiving uh, that opportunity, as it were, this evening. First time, as I was saying, um, in English for a while. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a great privilege, actually, to, to get back to, to this opportunity. One of the things I remember struck me when uh, moving to Italy uh, was, um, was the quality of the adverts, or, or perhaps, let's say, the lack of, the lack of quality of, um, of the adverts, particularly on TV. They, they seemed very, very stilted and very, very artificial. Uh, they went something like this. Normally, it's, it's a young, attractive woman with article in hand, and she says, basically, um, I've tried this, it works really well, you do the same, find it works for you, <laughs> and that's it, really, um, repeated on whatever kind of article is, is on offer. Now, that may sound um, very simplistic, but it isn't far off the truth. Perhaps, perhaps it's similar here. Um, perhaps I'm, uh, uh, I'm remembering England more positively than the reality. Now, if that's a strange place to start a sermon. It, it simply serves, perhaps as a poor illustration, of a certain movement that you see within Psalm 34, and it would be wonderful to have Psalm 34 in front of us, even if some of us perhaps aren't used to having an open Bible during a sermon. Um, please don't presume that I'm saying things that are true. Uh, have a Bible open and weigh up what the preacher is saying in front of the Word of God. So Psalm 34, page 561, you see this movement within this psalm. In fact, you see this movement within many psalms of David because what you have is he's recounting his personal experience with the living God. He is recounting his personal experience with the living God, how he's come to know this God, how he's come to love and trust this God through many challenges of life. He's writing in a spirit um, that is not personal boasting, but it is the spirit of uh, what the Bible calls exhortation. Uh, that is to say, speaking from personal experience of God to sharing the lessons with the people of God on what it means to walk and belong to this God through sometimes unpleasant times. So here's how I would summarise Psalm 34. 
uh, in, a, in a sentence. Having experienced the deliverance of God, David exhorts his people to praise and fear the Lord in faith that this is the road to blessing and deliverance. Having experienced the deliverance of God, David exhorts his people to praise and fear the Lord in faith that this is the road to blessing and deliverance. The road to blessing is to praise and fear the Lord. That is the road to blessing in life, to praise and to fear the Lord. But who is David calling us to fear when he talks about the Lord? He's not simply choosing a general word for deity. This is so important in the pluralistic age in which we live. So important to grasp this. David is not saying, he's not just choosing a general word for deity as if he's saying it is good to have religious faith in some God of some kind. It will help you in life. He is not saying that. He is absolutely not saying that. We cannot take the Bible in hand and whenever we see the name Lord in the Bible, simply fill it with our own concepts of what God may be like. We can't do that. If we do, we're, we're idolaters. If we do, we're committing idolatry. We are saying false things of the true God. Because um, verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. And do you see the Lord there is in capitals. Why in capitals? Because that is the name Yahweh. That is the name of God by which he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. I am who I am. Yahweh is the Hebrew verb for to be. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Yahweh, incomparable, ever faithful. Ever faithful to what? Ever faithful to his covenant promises. That is how he swore on oath to Abraham to be the God of his ancient people, Israel. David is speaking of this God. David is speaking of the God of Scripture. See how often he pronounces his most intimate name, Yahweh, the Hebrew name in Exodus 3, is always translated the Lord in capitals. See how often he uses the name. Verses 1 to 4. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. And he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You see? Mine is not some vague religious faith in a greater being. It is a real joyful, life-changing knowledge of the God of Scripture. And because David knows Yahweh in his experience, in his delivering power... 
He directs the psalm to those who profess faith in the same Lord. A psalm written to those, including many of us here tonight, who have living faith in the God of Scripture. It's revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. He is moving from his own experience to giving instruction in what is an acrostic psalm, what's called an acrostic psalm. That simply means that each line of the psalm begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that gives a sense of wholeness and completion to the psalm. So he is moving from personal experience, from personal experience, because the psalm recounts a particular moment in David's life. Do you see the opening words, the introduction there, of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away. That's why we had the reading, 1 Samuel 20, well, sorry, 1 Samuel 21. That's why we had that reading. That is the narrative behind this psalm when David feigned insanity. Those were the years when David was a fugitive. He was forced on the run by the murderous intentions of the then king, Saul. A number of us will know the story, I trust. David flees Israel to go to nearby Gath, which was one of five Philistine cities. Now, the Philistines were the great enemies of Israel. Who are Israel's greatest enemies? The Philistines. Many had already been killed by David. That's what we had in the reading. Hold on, this is David. We can't have David in the court of the Philistines. And that is why, to survive the royal court, he feigns madness. And the king insists that the madman must be expelled. And David finds no refuge. He finds no refuge either in Gath, in the royal court, or in Israel, because there's a death cost on his head by Saul. He finds no refuge in circumstantial places of potential security. They don't exist for him. In fact, the only place he finds is the cave of Adullam. That's why the last verse, 1 Samuel 22 verse 1, he ends up in a cave, in the cave of Adullam. But why is he running? Why is he a fugitive in that period of his life? Do you know why? Why is he a fugitive? Precisely because of the promise of God. It is the promise of God that's made him a fugitive. The Lord has already promised him the kingdom in 1 Samuel 16. It was popular knowledge, even though Saul was unwilling to concede it. The Lord had anointed David king, and it was that which was causing him trouble. The gift of the promise forces David to flee. Yeah, so important to grasp that. So what does the fugitive say to the God who has so greatly complicated his life? I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Not just when things go swimmingly. David here is making a resolution, 
a resolution to bless and praise Yahweh even when he's hiding in a cave. A resolution to praise his name in all circumstances. And it comes from a man who seeks his God. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. He keeps me alive, though I receive no human shelter. But what are the fears here in verse 4? I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. I, I think it's right to understand those as the inward fears. The inward fears of David's heart as he hides from a royal army. David has brought those fears to God and the Lord frees him. He delivers him from those fears. Verse 4. He does not deliver him from the situation as yet, but from the crippling fears that could so easily dominate. Verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. He keeps me alive, though I receive no human shelter. He says the same in verse 6. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The poor man, biblically, is the one who recognizes himself to be poor. The poor person is the one who says, I am poor before the Lord. And I, make no, I have no embarrassment to say, I am poor before the Lord. That is the poor person whom the Lord hears. That is David's personal experience in which he makes this resolution from which we have much to learn. David is resolved to bless the Lord's name in all circumstances. Will we do the same? David is resolved to seek his face in the midst of very real problems and dangers. Will we do the same? Many difficulties we face are unvoiced, unsaid, hidden. How do we face them? How do we face those difficulties? With our own humanly concocted resolutions and solutions, or by seeking the Lord's face. The Christian needs to learn to seek the Lord's face with an ear to his word, with a hunger for prayer, with a seeking out the counsel of his people. So that is his personal experience, from personal experience to sharing the lessons. From personal experience to sharing the lessons. Otherwise, the psalm is simply a diary entry. A record of personal experience. But it's more than that. David self-consciously moves from personal experience to sharing the lessons. He does so as anointed, as the anointed, the chosen king. And anyway, those who really know and love the Lord cannot help but share 
lessons with others. It's like a fountain uh, that is fed continually from the source of living water. And that fountain will effuse to others. It will pour itself out to others, inevitably. So it is with a Christian who knows and walks with God. Notice how David invites others to share in his praise. Look at verse 2. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. He's inviting others to come into this praise. As I boast in the goodness of Lord of the Lord, may you hear me and may you too be glad in this God. For I should not be alone declaring his greatness. You must join me. You must join me to declare his greatness. Verse 3, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let us raise his name to the heights that are already his together. It has been said, God's praises sound best in concert. Indeed, it is so healthy to praise this God. It is wholesome to look to him in the challenges of life. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This has certainly been my um, experience over the years. Um, complications in life and ministry certainly do not reduce in time. Life is far more complicated now than 10, 20 years ago. But when I seek the face of the Lord in the scriptures, in prayer, in godly counsel, it is, verse 5, enlightening. Those who look to him are radiant. A sense that the difficulties will not put us to shame because of the promise of verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who fear him, and he delivers them. The messenger, you could translate it, the messenger or the angel of the Lord, that is the leader of the Lord's armies, encamps around those that fear that revere this God, that he might bring deliverance. David's experience, you see, becomes a testimony to others. It becomes a testimony to others of all the blessing and the rich favor of God that comes upon us when we take refuge in him and seek him in godly fear. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Learning to savour the goodness of God. Can you say that of your life? I'm learning, I'm learning to savour the goodness of God. And I'm not tying it to my circumstances. But to who he is and his word and his promises. Learning to savour that goodness as we shelter in him and not elsewhere. As we make choices not to trust our human-made solutions. As we learn essentially to find our dependence on him for all the outward success that our lives may seem to indicate. 
in a culture that presses us to insist that it is all our doing. That if we are successful, it is our doing. And if we make mistakes, that's the problems of others. It's the mistakes of others. Verse 9, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. That is, learning to walk in his sight, mindful of him in our daily responsibilities. I think that's what it means. What does it mean to revere the Lord, to fear the Lord? I think it means living each day mindful of him, living our lives in his sight, learning to revere him for his greatness, mindful of him in our daily responsibilities in a culture that readily blasphemes him. His people are marked by an honouring of him. The word honour in Hebrew is all about weight, giving God his due weight, giving God his due glory in the things of life. That is to fear him. Because the things that we desire will change, you see. It's interesting, verse 9. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. It is a promise. If you fear and revere the Lord, you will lack nothing. How can that promise be? Because as we fear him, our desires change. The things we desire will change and we will start tasting the sufficiency of all that we have in him. We don't need all those things that we're told we need. We'll see that we don't need them. We will know that we lack nothing. Verse 10, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. That's the very strong an an ablest animal, a young lion. One day a young lion uh, will not be fast enough to feed itself and grasp its prey. So even the strongest, ablest animal one day will fail to fend for himself. But those who seek the Lord, verse 10, lack no good thing, find completeness in him. You see there's a movement from personal experience to sharing the lessons. And I think that this suggests to us that In church life, there should be a culture of personal testimony. Not, I hasten to add, as a means of personal boasting. But as a genuine concern to edify others. To strengthen others in the faith as we remind one another of the wonderful faithfulness of God. A a culture of testimony not centered on my own spiritual prowess. But on his enduring goodness that other Christians might be truly built up. That is what David is doing in this psalm. To look to the same God in Jesus Christ. As we learn to seek him. As we learn to take refuge in him as we learn to fear him, actively investing our time to learn these things. Interestingly, these are all commands to the people of God. David is not writing to people who don't claim to know God, but to the people who profess faith, he is saying, you need to learn to seek him. You need to learn to take refuge in him and to fear him. 
actively investing our time to learn a countercultural dependence upon him, from personal experience to sharing the lessons, to the final point, to life instruction, to life instruction. There is a definite progression at verse 11. See the change of tone at verse 11? Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So I've been telling you, fear the Lord. Now I will teach you what it means to fear the Lord. And the second half of the psalm, from 11 to 22, um, is overtly focused on teaching the people of God, on instructing us in the way of salvation. As to the wisdom books of Scripture, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, seeing in this Hebrew word fear or reverence the linchpin of wisdom, verse 11, come my children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear, the reverence of the Lord. I will teach you what it means to walk reverently before him. That's a life that needs to be taught. And so David gives some examples of what that means. So there's this transition, you see, from recounting personal testimony to exhorting, sharing the lessons, to instructing on how to live in fear of the Lord. This is to desire and love life. Look at verse 12. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. So whoever here tonight, whoever of you loves your life and desires to see good days... And now David describes what it means to love your life. Interesting, isn't it? Because when you hear it said, you know, he, he or she loved life, maybe at an obituary or a you know, funeral, he or she loved life, it tends to mean someone who lived without reference to God. It tends to mean someone who found their soul meaning in the abundantly varied experiences that they had of life because they had nothing else. Whilst in truth, biblically, to love life, verse 12, is to fear the Lord. If you really love your life, you will fear the Lord. You will learn to fear the Lord if you really love your life. If you really love your life, you will learn to walk humbly with God. And, and that means that you will guard your tongue, verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. You, it lies. you will guard against evil speech because what we say does shape our reality, doesn't it? The things we say and talk about shape our reality. And if I continue to speak with deceit, I end up believing the deceit. It becomes my reality. Guarding against evil speech. Our conversation reveals what's inside our hearts. And our conversation also creates our world. So guard the tongue. And pursue peace, verse 14. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That doesn't simply mean a kind of compromised anything to keep the peace. Um, it is a will to pursue the good ways of God. Seek the integrity of the ways of God. Seek the peaceful, integral ways of God. 
David is teaching us to fear him, that it is seen in what we say. It is seen in what we work for. Reminding the professing people of God that we consciously live in his sight because he is watching over the course of our lives. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. To know that as we live actively before him, it is under his gaze. Do you have that sense? You know, my life is under the gaze of God. From day to day, his eyes are upon his righteous. Who are his righteous? Those who are covered by the righteousness of his son, as we've sung tonight. Our lives are under his gaze. His eyes are upon his righteous. For what reason? To do us good. His ears are attentive to guard us from evil. Verse 15, his ears are attentive to their cry. We trust him to watch over his own. That's to say... We're not living to please a deity indifferent towards us. We're not living to please a deity indifferent towards us. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. That is a precious truth for the people of God. Assured that God looks upon us, his righteous in Christ, not because we are better, but because of Christ's blood, and he looks on us as one committed to working our good. God looks upon his own as one committed to working our good, our real good. What a comfort to know him. Do you know this God? Do do you know this God? the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you not love your life enough to learn to fear this God? Will you not love your life enough to learn to fear this God? To learn to walk in his ways. That is the privilege of the Christian who lives trusting that the Lord will deliver us finally that he will deliver his own finally. And that is so important to grasp in this psalm. In a psalm that quotes deliver three times, do you see that? In verse 4, in verse 17, in verse 19, three times this, this Hebrew verb deliver. The Lord delivers the righteous from all their troubles. In a psalm that quotes deliver three times, it's so important we understand this promise. It is not the promise that the Lord removes all our difficulties. After all, doesn't David flee Saul because of the divine promise? Hasn't God, as it were, generated difficulties for David rather than resolved them? So, verse 19, a righteous man may have many troubles. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Very clear, isn't it? A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Because belonging 
to this God sometimes generates extra afflictions. That we might learn to live by faith in his goodness, experiencing his deliverance, of which we gain the clearest picture in verse 20. What is his deliverance? He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And that's an image. It is an image. It is an image that the Lord will ultimately preserve his own. And yet it is more than an image. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. It is more than an image because this is the story of the righteous man. One who was certainly not exempt of many afflictions and injustices. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. When a rebellious world nailed him to a tree. Yet even at death, he, the righteous man, entrusted himself to him who judges justly, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And once he breathed his last, we, we read in John chapter 19, verse 34, page 1088. John 19, verse 34. Once he breathed his last, we read, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34. That the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. What are we saying? We are saying that Jesus Christ is the righteous man. We are saying that the truths of the psalm find their embodiment and fulfillment in the eternal son. You see how the Christian trusts the Lord will deliver us finally. It doesn't mean we're saved from great affliction and injustice today. Jesus wasn't. There was no way out from the cross. But rather we will know fresh afflictions by belonging to Christ. But it does mean that for the people of God, the story will always end in resurrection. The story will always end in resurrection. The cross is not the final note of the life of the righteous man. Jesus tells the story of the righteous man and the end is his resurrection, his ascension, his glory. Trusting the Lord will deliver us finally. Though many are his acts of salvation in the course of our lives, that ultimate deliverance is not promised this side of the grave. That ultimate deliverance awaits his return. Yet it is still worth living for this God, whatever happens 
in your life, it is still worth living for this God. Because that salvation will come in resurrection power to all those who love Jesus. In the day that he brings not just salvation to his own, but the destruction of the wicked. Look at uh, verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And that's why the Psalms, we could say, are, are eschatological. They look to the future fulfillment of the divine promises. The Psalms look to the future fulfillment of the divine promises, including the final act of Jesus. On the day of his return when it will be a day in which he comes to save, but a day also in which he comes to judge. Look at the final note of Psalm 34, verse 22. The Lord redeems, buys back his servants, and no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. But verse 21, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. And it is in the light of this truth that we see that to love life, to love your life, to love your own life, is so very clearly to belong wholeheartedly to this God by faith, trusting in that ultimate deliverance. So let's just take a moment to pray together as we close. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Lord, if the wonders of belonging to you are so manifestly revealed in Psalm 34, how wonderful, Lord Jesus, to find you as the embodiment of all those truths. Uh, the one who is the righteous man before the Father, the only righteous man before the Father, who through his own suffering at the cross can declare righteous all those who take shelter in him, um, that they too might be brought under the dynamics of this life, of trusting in your ultimate deliverance and being able to praise you in all circumstances. Father, we pray that that would mark the life of this fellowship, St. John's, that that would mark our own lives um, in the coming days. And that it would do so in such a genuine way that our personal experience would always pour itself out in instructing others and giving testimony of the goodness of belonging to you, our God. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.